Welcome and thank you for standing by for today's conference. All participants will be in listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time to ask a question, please press star 1. Please provide your name and affiliation and country you are calling from. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the call over to Michael Morrow, Senior Diplomatic Fellow at the Wilson Center. Sir, you may begin. Thank you, and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on where you're calling in from. On behalf of the Wilson Center Africa Program, I'd like to welcome you all to today's Ground Truth Briefing on U.S. interests and engagement in the Sahel, current state, key issues, and the way ahead. To discuss this critical topic, we are very honored to have with us today Dr. J. Peter Fahm, United States Special Envoy for the Sahel Region of Africa. We're very excited to have Dr. Fahm join us for this Wilson Center event. The Wilson Center was chartered by Congress in 1968 as the official memorial to President Woodrow Wilson, and we are a nonpartisan policy forum uh, with the goal of tackling global issues through independent research and open dialogue to inform actionable ideas for the policy community. And I'm proud to say that this year's University of Pennsylvania Global Go-To Think Tank Index Report has again ranked the Wilson Center as one of the top 10 think tanks globally and has awarded the Wilson Center the number one spots in both regional studies and institutional collaboration for two years running. Uh, before introducing Dr. Fahm, I'd like briefly to set the stage for our discussion today. Uh, this is a critical moment for the countries of the Sahel. Violent extremism organizations pose a significant and growing threat to the region and increasingly uh, to all of West Africa. Despite major regional and international security efforts, the violence continues to spread. Many of the core governmental issues being exploited by these extremist groups, such as poverty, corruption, inequality, poor services, are still uh, major vulnerabilities in the Sahel region. Moreover, the COVID-19 pandemic is yet another acute threat to the Sahel countries, as is climate change. And the recent coup in Mali only highlights the precarious situation that the region faces. So it's against this uh, daunting backdrop that uh, Dr. Fahm assumed the role of Special Envoy to the Sahel region in March of this year. The U.S. is a key player in the region and a major source of support for the governments and the people of the Sahel. Today, Dr. Fahm will provide an update on U.S. engagement in the Sahel, give us insights into the key issues facing the region and what the U.S. is doing to address them, and also discuss the way forward for U.S. policy. So uh, uh, prior to being named the U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel region of Africa, Dr. Fahm had served as the U.S. Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa from 2018 until March of this year. Before joining the State Department, Dr. Fahm served as Vice President and Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council and Senior Vice President of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy, and was at James Madison University as Associate Professor of Justice Studies, Political Science, and Africana Studies, and was also Director of JMU's Nelson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Dr. Fahm uh, was also Vice President of the Association for the Study of the Middle East and Africa, and currently serves as the Vice Chair of the Board of the National Museum of African Art. Dr. Fahm holds a BA in Economics from the University of Chicago and a doctorate from the Gregorian University, as well as postgraduate degrees in History, Law, International Relations, and Theology. Before I turn things over to Dr. Fahm, I'd like to remind our audience that there will be a moderated Q&A session following his remarks. Anyone listening in will be asked to enter the Q&A queue by pressing star 1. Also, just want to remind everyone that you can tweet out about the conversation using the hashtag Sahel. So, Dr. Fahm, thank you so much for joining us today, and it's my honor to now give you the floor. Well, thank you very much, Mike, and uh, thank you to your colleagues at the Wilson Center, in particular my good friend, uh, 
Dr. Monte Mugangwa, the director of the Africa program there, for the invitation and this opportunity to discuss U.S. engagement in the Sahel. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the Sahel region faces a growing set of political, economic, and security-related challenges. The Secretary of State's approval at the end of last year of a diplomatic framework for the Sahel and the creation of my position as Special Envoy for the Sahel region reflects the U.S. government's commitment to the region. The goal of the diplomatic framework for the Sahel, approved by the Secretary, is for West African governments to address the drivers of insecurity, to contain the spread of violence, and to stabilize the region with the help of better coordinated international and U.S. interagency support. My mandate uh, has four key elements. Uh, first, to help improve coordination with other international and regional partners and organizations. Uh, I serve as the U.S. government's single point of contact for our interagency and international partners. With a foot in the Bureau of African Affairs at the State Department, I also bridge divides within the State Department's uh, other bureaus, including Near Eastern Affairs and European Affairs, as well as functional bureaus and USAID, where many of these programs for the Sahel reside. While there's no shortage of international attention and initiatives in the Sahel, there is a lack of results on the ground, if we're going to be perfectly frank. Better alignment of international and regional efforts can make existing resources much more effective. And with all due respect uh, to some of uh, our international partners, the multiplication of meetings and structures does not necessarily equal effective action. And, of course, West African efforts have to be the focus of our attention. And in this ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, is a key partner, uh, once again showing its leadership in the crisis of the region, this time particularly in Mali. Another sub-regional effort that deserves probably signaling is the G5 Sahel. Uh, I just returned from a trip that included Mauritania and Niger, as well as a stop in, in France. In Nouakchuk, I met with the G5 Executive Secretariat, uh, the Executive Secretary, Maman Sidiku, and I con and continue to appreciate his and the G5's efforts in the region. In Niger, I met with President Isufu, who played a leading role in the ECOWAS response to the Mali crisis during his just-concluded 15-month tenure holding the rotating uh, ECOWAS presidency. And, of course, this month, uh, Niger holds the rotating United Nations Security Council presidency. These leaders, along with other leaders in the region, are working to with us to return Mali to constitutional rule. In addition to improving coordination, the second part of my mandate is helping to promote stability in Mali. As recent events have reminded us all, Mali remains the epicenter of political instability in the Sahel. And we believe that the central principles of the now five-year-old Algiers Accord remain as relevant as ever to Mali's long-term stability, and the implementation of those provisions could have a significant positive impact on Mali and on the region. Now, clearly, recent events in Mali have been a setback, and there are clear indications of the need to address some of Mali's longstanding governance shortcomings. Uh, we condemned the August 18th actions to overthrow Mali's elected president and immediately halted our security assistance in Mali. We continue to call for those detained by the de facto authorities and their families to be released without condition. In my recent travels to Mauritania and Niger, I spoke with leaders who were very concerned about the situation in Mali and the implications it has for their own countries and the region. We have expressed full support for the efforts of ECOWAS, the G5, Sahel, and other partners who have worked together toward a restoration of constitutional government via timely uh, elections uh, led by a civilian transition. In response to ongoing discussions with ECOWAS, the de facto authorities in Mali, the so-called National Committee for the Salvation of People, CNSP, uh, recently named retired military officer and former defense minister Ban Dao as president of the transitional government, while CNSP head Colonel Asimi Goita was named vice president. They'll be inaugurated tomorrow 
the president and vice president within name of prime minister and Mali's de facto authorities have committed to that this transitional government will hold elections within 18 months as agreed to with ECOWAS, returning Mali to civilian constitutional rule. As the situation evolves, the U.S. will continue to work closely with our partners to ensure momentum towards that return and the longer-term process of building inclusive effective governance. Thirdly, pressing and my mandate includes pressing and supporting uh, for increase in state legitimacy in the Sahel and in coastal West Africa in general. At the heart of the crisis in the Sahel, I believe it's ultimately a crisis of state legitimacy. That is, whether or not citizens perceive that their governments are legitimate, equitable, and able and willing to meet their needs. This includes assuring justice and accountability for human rights violations and abuses committed by security forces. Without such a commitment, no degree of international engagement is likely to succeed. If states, especially security forces, continue to commit human rights violations or abuses, it undermines their credibility with their own citizens and thus undermines their ability to counter violent extremism. Transparent investigations, appropriate accountability for any perpetrators are essential in their own right and also can help restore the trust between governments and citizens. As the State Department has said in recent statements, our assistance to the region must not be used in any way that contributes to violations or abuses of human rights. And without prompt and thorough action to address allegations of such violations and abuses, U.S. security assistance is going to be put at risk. Finally, I have a mandate to work toward preventing spillover of insecurity. The State Department, USA, continue security assistance and governance efforts to prevent and mitigate conflict and spread violent and the spread of violent extremism in the West African littoral states, including Nigeria. Democratic and inclusive government can be a bulwark against the further spread of violence. And that's why we're pressing for free and fair elections this year in Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Ghana, and next year in Benin. Now, I want to add a word finally, uh, if I can, about uh, the humanitarian situation. Uh, more than 2.5 million people in the Sahel region are displaced. 3.3 are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection services. And the United States is proud to be the largest donor of humanitarian assistance to the region. And I'm pleased to announce today that the U.S. government is contributing nearly 152 million in additional humanitarian assistance directed toward Niger, Mali, Mauritania, and Burkina Faso. Let me add that none of this humanitarian assistance will go to the, the de facto authorities in Mali. During my recent trip, I had the opportunity firsthand to see how mass population displacements and food insecurity continue to worsen due to the ongoing conflict in the region. I also had the opportunity to see from the air the devastating impact of floods uh, brought about by un, uh, historically unprecedented rains that the region has had in recent months. Uh, with this new funding, the U.S. government is providing life-saving aid to the people, uh, displaced refugees, and hosting communities affected by the ongoing conflict. We welcome the partnership of other donors in responding to the humanitarian crisis in the Sahel, and we will continue to be a catalyst for the international community's engagement to answer the call of those in need. And with that, I'll, I'll stop, and be, I welcome uh, your questions uh, Mike and uh, those of the audience. Thank you. Great, Dr. Fahm. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, and um, quite exciting to hear about the $152 million in new humanitarian assistance. So we appreciate uh, being among the first to hear that. Um, let's see. Uh, so we'll now move to the audience uh, question and answer session. And first, I want to give a quick reminder uh, on our rules of engagement. Um, to ask a question, you can enter the queue by pressing star 1. This will direct you to our operator who will record your name and your place in the queue. 
And then uh, I will call on audience members to speak. Uh, we'll take one question at a time, and the operator will then open your line to the full group so that you can you can um, speak speak your question directly to uh, Dr. Fahm and the rest of the group. Um, we ask that you uh, tell us your name and the organization with which you're affiliated. And um, we also ask that everyone uh, keep their questions to no longer than one minute in length. Uh, uh, we want to ensure that as many people as possible have the opportunity to participate. And I think uh, uh, last I saw we had uh, 160 callers on the line, so we want to uh, give as much chance for people to ask questions as, as possible. So I will be strict in enforcing that one-minute rule. Um, I will take the liberty of kicking things off by posing the first question to Dr. Fahm. Um, it's a question that I know has been at the forefront uh, of the minds of just about everyone who follows developments in the Sahel. And this question is about the announced review of the U.S. military posture in Africa. Uh, Dr. Fahm, recognizing that you probably uh, don't have all the answers at this stage, we'd still be grateful for whatever insights you can share about where things currently stand with the military posture review. Uh, specifically, what are the key issues under debate? Who are the primary voices? And what is the decision-making timeline? And lastly, what are the implications of this policy review for U.S. engagement in the Sahel and, and frankly, for, for uh, U.S. engagement with Africa as a whole? So, uh, Dr. Fahm, over to you, please. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, it's an important question. It's one I certainly get asked uh, in almost every meeting uh, I have. It's, uh, the review that Secretary of Defense Esper ordered of our military posture, not just in Africa, but really uh, globally, uh, has ex been widely reported in the media and certainly raised a number of uh, concerns and discussions, uh, and it, in Africa in particular, I'll focus on that. So there's undoubtedly, it's a, leg it's a legitimate question and an important one. And uh, you know, not to dodge it, but uh, it is an ongoing process. And it first is, and foremost is an internal uh, military review of forces and, and posture, and it's being conducted within the Defense Department. So really the, probably the appropriate person uh, to address that would probably be the, uh, the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of uh, Defense for, for African Affairs. Uh, uh, but, you know, I can say that it's within, from what I know talking to colleagues there, it's an ongoing process, so there's no firm decisions have been made yet, uh, and that's important. Uh, I, there's been a lot reported in the media as if it were fully done, and it's, it's not. Nevertheless, uh, irrespective of what uh, uh, the review turns up and recommendations made to the Secretary of Defense and whatever his decisions uh, will be after that, I want to emphasize that the U.S. remains engaged and will continue to respond to the security challenges in Africa in general and in the Sahel in particular. Nothing's going to diminish our commitment to working closely with our African partners to reduce threats and advance our interests in the region. If that weren't the case, the Secretary of State would not have approved a diplomatic engagement strategy in the Sahel, and uh, frankly, I would be in my old job as opposed to this new job. Uh, and worth reminding people, especially those who aren't in Washington and don't follow the ins and outs of our uh, budgetary process, that most of the security assistance in Africa is actually comes through the Department of State. Uh, uh, the, most of the peace and security assistance remains State Department funds, and they'll remain there irrespective of what the Department of Defense decides. Uh, between 2010 and 2019, the Department of State obligated some 4.7 billion dollars in bilateral security assistance to counter uh, state fragility, to work on conflict, transnational terrorism, and crime uh, uh, across the region. And the majority of that assistance doesn't depend on the U.S. military for implementation or oversight. And so we're committed to maintaining this engagement uh, where the conditions allow, uh, irrespective of whatever uh, the Defense Department uh, ultimately decides. Thank you. 
Thank you, uh, Dr. Fum. Very helpful to have that. Uh, I'd now like to open the floor to questions from our audience. Um, our audience has now grown to uh, 209 callers at last count. So thank you all for joining us from wherever you are. And just a reminder, so you can enter the question queue by pressing star one. We've already got, I think, about nine people in the queue. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll call on those in the queue to speak, and the operator will open your line so you can pose your question to Dr. Fahm and the full group. And again, be sure to uh, tell us your name and organization, and please be mindful to take no longer than one minute to, to pose your question. So first in the queue is Dan Whitman, a professor with America, American University. So we'll give the floor to uh, Professor Whitman. Um, many thanks, and uh, many thanks to Dr. Fahm for this update and for your great efforts in the field. Uh, you've just addressed my question partially, but I would just add uh, a footnote. If the AFRICOM headquarters were to move from Stuttgart to someplace in Belgium, um, would that temporarily disrupt our security abilities um, in the Sahel? I, I'm guessing that the long-range effect might not be affected, but there could be a short-range disruption. Do you have any comment on that? Well, uh, I, I, I'm no great uh, expert. Uh, I don't even pretend to be one on military logistics, but uh, I would imagine any move involves some disruption, uh, uh, even cleaning out my study at home, as I was forced to do during uh, this pandemic, uh, caused a bit of disruption. So I imagine there will be some, but I think it will settle down. And uh, very quickly. So I, I have full confidence in uh, uh, in our military to be able to carry out uh, whatever mission is entrusted to them and to do so with the same type of precision they always bring to these types of things. Many thanks. Okay. Uh, next up for the question is a excellent friend of the Wilson Center Africa program, uh, Ni Akuate of George Washington University. So, Ni, over to you, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Fahm, uh, congratulations. Uh, you should know that behind your back, I tell everybody that we, we are close friends, and I'm, I'm proud of you and the work you are doing at the, at the, at the State Department and looking at, um, at conditions in, in my neck of the woods of uh, uh, Africa, the, the Sahel. My question actually uh, is linked to the first two, is the security question and U.S.'s role. You know, yesterday, day before yesterday, the French president spoke at the U.N. Then yesterday, the president of the European Commission also spoke, and they both put uh, an emphasis on Africa. And my concern is that it seems to me that the U.S., um, seems to be saying we will let the Europeans take care of uh, security problems in Africa, especially in the Sahel. That concerns me because, number one, the Europeans are allowing Africans to die in the Mediterranean. It shows you the racism in Europe. And secondly, um, there are close to 40 million African Americans here, and France is very unpopular in Africa. So... Africans, if I might say so, would prefer to partner with the U.S. to provide security for for Africans, especially given the U.S.'s own democracy and civilian control of the military. So please, re can you comment on that, that the U.S. is not saying when it comes to African security, we will let the Europeans take care of it, because I think that would be bad for both Africans and for U.S. interests, and thank you again. Oh, oh! Thank you very much, Nee, for for the question and for your comments. And uh, it's it's always good to talk, uh, to speak with you. Uh, uh, one of the things, if I were not in my diplomatic role, I'd have a few answers for you. But uh, being a diplomat, I can't. I have to be diplomatic um, at the moment. Uh, it, but I think you raise a very good point, and the point being the preference for for the United States. That is. Uh, you know, palpable uh, in the region, everyone I speak to. So uh, you're, you're validating what a, is the desire to partner with the U.S. And certainly we are there. We're engaging. Uh, we're, we're, for the first time, thanks to the diplomatic framework that the Secretary 
of state approved at the end of last year, uh, and then the creation of my post out of that framework, uh, we're engaging the region as, as a whole uh, on the issues that are important to the region and doing it holistically, not recognizing that the security challenges are a symptom, uh, not the disease itself, the disease itself being uh, lack of state legitimacy, the failure to provide basic services, the failure to uh, be inclusive in the region. So we're, we're, we remain very much engaged uh, with that. So I would push back a little bit on the uh, uh, lack of engagement. Uh, we are engaged. We're ramping up. Uh, uh, clearly, we have slightly different interests than those of our European friends. Uh, uh, the Sahel is much closer to them, and uh, you know, they, they have their interests, but uh, where our interests uh, uh, align with theirs, we work very closely with them. I was just in Paris and met with the key government officials dealing with the Afro account, both at the, uh, the presidency, the defense ministry, uh, the uh, foreign ministry, and uh, one final thing I would push back a little bit. We have a very good partnership. I'm in regular contact with them. Uh, but I think my, uh, some of my French uh, friends would be rather surprised uh, to, uh, to, uh, to hear that, uh, you know, our engagement with them is described as uh, letting them take the lead. Uh, I think some of them would wish that I would be so passive, uh, but I'll leave it at that. Great. Uh, our next questioner uh, comes to us from University of Cambridge, uh, Max Bone. So, Max, uh, over to you, please. Hi, Dr. Baum. Um, it's great to have you on this call. Um, I'm curious what you see as the role for the North African countries to play, um, specifically Algeria, given its role in the Algiers Accord, and also Morocco, which reportedly was very involved um, trying to broker a um, some sort of an agreement during the protests, um, and especially given your long history of advocating um, the role that what that North African countries can play in the Sahel. I'm curious, in your new position, what you see the North African countries as being able to bring um, to the Sahel, and also what increased role um, you personally in the United States would like to see them playing. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Max, and uh, 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 all the best to you at, uh, at Cambridge. Uh, the, you know, as you correctly note, the, North, the, the Sahel is a bridge region. It's the shoreline of the Sahara, literally, Sahel in Arabic. Uh, and there, there's no doubt that what happens in North Africa and the Maghreb impacts the Sahel and vice versa. And so they have an important role, which is why part of it, the beginning, uh, I mentioned part of my job is to bridge these geographic divides that occur at the State Department because necessarily in any uh, institution you have to draw a line somewhere. But my job in part is to bridge those gaps so though, though my feet are firmly planted in the Afri Bureau of African Affairs, uh, I've got at least toes uh, uh, in NEA and EUR and uh, other parts of the State Department. So. Uh, very much believe that the North African states have a role to, uh, to play. Uh, and I, that, to, for me, is not only a matter of policy, it's of conviction. And so we have engaged, uh, I have engaged personally, both the Algerians and the Moroccans. Algeria is important. It's the principal party convening and continuing to follow the Algiers Accord. Uh, uh, Morocco has its influence in the region, as you note. And so we're in regular contact. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic uh, cut short my plans to uh, travel to both countries, but as soon as uh, it's possible, I certainly intend to, to uh, make calls in person uh, uh, physically uh, to both countries and engage them. But in the meantime, we're in regular contact with officials in both countries, and certainly they play a very constructive role uh, in the crisis in the Sahel. Great, thank you. Uh, our next questioner uh, is Joyce Namdi uh, of TLC Africa, and I believe a, uh, uh, a former Foreign Service colleague of mine. So, Joyce, over to you. 
Hello, thank you. This is Joyce Namde. I'm a former senior um, foreign service officer with the Department of State, and I also served as deputy chief of mission in Chad. Um, I wanted to say how important the coordination is, but my question actually relates to the parts of the Sahel not often addressed or included in programs such as the 152 million just announced. Um, Chad is ruled by an authoritarian ruler, President Debbie, who just elevated himself to the highest military rank at the cost of millions of dollars. He receives $100 million a year in security assistance, but we provide virtually nothing in non-security assistance. So my question is, how will the Sahel engagement policy address this need and lack of assistance in a country like Chad that has been a important, an important security partner, but the authoritarian regime does little for the population and the international community, including the U.S., invests little or nothing in non-security assistance to serve the needs of the suffering population? Well, uh, Joyce, thank you for your service, and thank you for that question. Uh, a actually, uh, the one of my, if you will, pet causes uh, uh, in my job is to really bring a little bit of light and attention to the, the two bookends, if you will, of the Sahel, Chad to the east and Mauritania to the west, who tend to be forgotten as we focus uh, heavily on, and understandably, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. Uh, I was in Chad uh, at the beginning of uh, last month, uh, met with President Deby, uh, also met with uh, civil society, business leaders, uh, met religious leaders, uh, also the, uh, the command of the French uh, Operation Barkhane, as well as the uh, Multinational Joint Task Force in Lake Chad Basin, since that's part of my remit. And I don't disagree with you at all. I think uh, uh, we probably should uh, and need to uh, uh, engage more, uh, uh, not just Chad, but Mauritania, uh, on the development front, on the economic front, on the business front. Now, the business front is going to be a little difficult because we need uh, some things need to be done on the business climate, uh, but certainly there are opportunities there for American business as well. So I fully agree with you, and I'm certainly – uh, in the months I've, few months I've been on this job, I've been an advocate for uh, increasing engagement on those things. You know, Chad, I made a, I, I ruffled a few feathers during my uh, uh, visit to Chad at the end by uh, making some pointed remarks about uh, the need for democratic space in the country and the importance of inclusive elections coming up next year. Uh, and allowing people to fully participate, including the youth of the country. So uh, we're paying attention to it. We probably should pay more attention to it. And uh, I certainly uh, would be an advocate for increased resources. Uh, and as you know, I'm, uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know far better than I do. Part of the problem is it's often out of sight, out of mind. Uh, unlike other countries in, in the region, Chad doesn't have its own U.S. aid mission and a and then, you know, it's the chicken and egg problem at that point. Uh, without a full-fledged aid mission, uh, there aren't programs, and, vice, and because there are programs, there isn't a mission which comes first. So it's a challenge, and uh, we, you know, slowly but surely, hopefully, we'll do our best to, to bring great, at least more attention to it, if nothing else. But thank you for your question. Great. Uh, We'll now give the floor to our next questioner, uh, Joseph Haley of the World Justice Report. Hi, yes, uh, I'm uh, Joseph Haley, ACLS Mellon Public Fellow at the World Justice Project, uh, where I run a research program focused on identifying and reporting rule of law solutions worldwide. And I just got back from the Sahel where I was researching access to civil justice. And my question concerns uh, our findings on the most severe rule of law issues in Mali in particular and how those may be contributing to the uh, civil crisis there and what is being done to uh, rectify the problem. So we have found in our rule of law index um, that Mali has some of the world's worst scores 
for effective investigations, government influence in the criminal justice system, uh, uh, judicial branch officials using office for private gain, and in particular, corruption in the civil justice system, where Mali ranks 127th out of 128 countries worldwide. Um, I know USAID has a program, uh, the Mali Justice Program, which is aimed at uh, strengthening and reforming the justice system. That's a $22 million program. But I wanted to hear generally what is being done to tackle corruption uh, in the judicial system in Mali, and how uh, is the recent coup affecting those efforts? Well, thank you very much for your question. Uh, I fully agree with your diagnosis uh, that uh, access to justice uh, is absolutely essential. Uh, uh, it's part of that package that uh, I'm calling state legitimacy, uh, which uh, I argue is the heart of the crisis in the region. And among the services the governments need to provide is uh, equitable access to reliable justice. In fact, uh, the, my own academic work uh, uh, outside of this, this role and pre-State Department shows that actually one of the, the key attractions of violent extremist groups is uh, in the region is that they provide, however rough, however brutal, uh, a reliable and relatively uh, speaking uh, corruption-free system for adjudicating disputes. Uh, it's one of the, the things they do provide, uh, however brutally and otherwise. So it's, it's, a, it's a strategic challenge as well as just a, a right in and of itself. You've mentioned some of the USAID programming. Uh, certainly the events of August 18th in Mali complicate things, but you know, we recognize that frustration with the previous uh, government is, uh, regime was certainly part and parcel of the backdrop uh, that led to the protests, which uh, occasioned uh, the military action uh, last month. And uh, we're going to push during the months. We can't, if we just go back to the status ante quo, after this transition period in Mali. Then we'll be back here again, just like we're back here again uh, for, uh, where we were in 2012. Uh, so this period is an opportunity for Mali. It doesn't come about the way we'd want it to come about, but it's an opportunity that we're gonna work with the Malians to at least get some, uh, some fundamental changes, because if they don't do that at this point and go back to the status ante quo, then, you know, uh, we're in a vicious cycle. So I fully agree with you. Uh, emphasizing justice, not just civil justice, but uh, accountability for, as I mentioned earlier, for human rights abuses. It's certainly been in conversations I've had with every uh, government official in the region, uh, including presidents, that uh, this is not just a uh, something uh, cliche. It's actually strategic for us. And uh, we measure the effectiveness, the potential effectiveness of our, of all the we do in the security sector uh, by whether or not there's effective uh, action uh, on these rights issues, because otherwise uh, we're just, you know, at best treading water. Thank you, Dr. Fum. Uh, our next questioner is a member of the media. Uh, we have Solomon Salem of Voice of America. So, Solomon, over to you. Thank you so much. This is Salem Solomon uh, from the Voice of America. Uh, welcome back, uh, Mr. Pham. Uh, I've followed your work very closely. We've spoken in the past as well. Uh, I would like to focus on the security issue you mentioned uh, and uh, uh, the announcement that was made today. Uh, was this in addition to uh, a recently built $110 million uh, drone base in Niger? Uh, is this separate from that when you say security effort? Uh, uh, please elaborate on that. And uh, uh, you are on the ground, spoke to, you met with leaders and civil society, but can you please give us um, an understanding of the conversations you've had with African uh, civilians and people who are directly affected by, as of last year, the deadliest year on record for extremist violence in the Sahel region? What is your sense? What are people saying to 
to uh, you? What, what did people say to you? What do people think about the rhetoric coming from the U.S.? What is their understanding of how the U.S. Um, is um, uh, involve, involving? Uh, what is their priority in terms of uh, engagement and what they look for for what the U.S. should be doing in the region and their countries? Uh, please share anecdotes with us. Thank you. Okay, let, let me clarify. Uh, what I announced today was $152 million in humanitarian assistance. Uh, uh, I'm not, I didn't announce anything having to do with uh, uh, drone bases or anything else. Uh, this is $152 million new dollars for humanitarian assistance. Uh, and the reason we're announcing that is we, we are concerned about the humanitarian suffering in the area. Uh, people are, you know, I'm hearing from people, I'm seeing people, I'm witnessing firsthand displacement. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and uh, if displacement by conflict weren't enough, we now have historic flooding uh, with unprecedented rains across the region. You know, this is a region where water uh, uh, was greeted with elation, and now it's turned uh, other, the other way around. Uh, when I was in Niger, uh, the the love flooding i you know uh wasn't my first trip there my first special envoy and i've never seen the water level of the niger river that high uh if you know something about uh niamey the across the river from the capital or the the three sisters uh three large sand dunes if you know region i've never seen the water lap up to the bottom of the sand dunes uh it's there now so it's it's tremendous. And people in the region, uh, ordinary people, are concerned about, first and foremost, as, you know, not surprisingly, security, uh, protection against the violence and the extremism, uh, and the communal violence that some have stoked in the region. Uh, and then how to feed themselves and their families. Uh, and on both counts, I think they're, they're grateful for uh, the assistance, uh, you know, such as it is that we're able to bring. And of course, you know, we welcome others to join us because there's there's more than enough for for everyone to do uh, in that in that regard. Uh, interestingly, uh, as uh, Ni uh, brought up earlier, there's a uh, this is an interesting area of the world where, uh, if you will, the American brand is still very good. Uh, the uh, people want U.S. engagement; they want more of it rather than less of it. Uh, uh, part of that is, uh, Neve brought up earlier in his question, part of it is a colonial, I think, legacy, but part of it also is they see how we do things, which is a little bit different than that of, uh, other partners. So I think that's, that, that, that would be my biggest takeaway is the, uh, uh, the welcome, not just on the governmental level, but on the level of ordinary, uh, individuals. Uh, but, they're, they're probably, I would say, for the ordinary man, woman, and child, the, the, the key issue uh, in their life is security and livelihood. Uh, uh, this has always been a fragile region, uh, and in recent years, it's only, unfortunately, grown even more fragile, and, we, uh, and it hangs uh, by a very narrow thread. Thank you. Next up is uh, Rasun Chu, uh, and I would ask that you please um, state for us your uh, uh, organizational affiliation when you ask your question. Thank you. Thank you. I am preacher Ransom Chu, and I'm the Executive Secretary of Justice for the Indigenous Peoples of Southern Cameroon onto Independence. Thank you so much, uh, sir. And thank you for everything you, are, you have been saying about the security issues in, in the Sahel. We are more preoccupied by the bloodshed that is taking place in southern Cameroon, as you, you really know about the security issues. Now, we, our concern would be, will, will you, the U.S., support a military buffer zone to end the bloodshed that is taking place on both sides, uh, following the genocide by, uh, by the Diaz, Cameroon on these vulnerable indigenous of southern Cameroon, and does the U.S. support an, in, an independent southern Cameroon? And the last thing will be uh, 
is the U.S. foreseen using the Global Magnetic Act against Yaoundé as they refuse to follow an international monitor ceasefire, even as proposed by Senator Ben Kaden lately in the new Senate Resolution 684. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your thank you for your question. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, uh, where the U.S. stands uh, with regard to the, the violence uh, uh, in Cameroon. Uh, we've been uh, very much uh, at the uh, head of the curve in that uh, Ambassador Peter Ballerin uh, 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 was the public face of that uh, in Yaoundé, but uh, uh, here back at home, uh, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Tibor Naj, has been, as, as you know, very seized with it. Uh, he served uh, in Cameroon uh, in his diplomatic career, and he knows the, the issues has been engaged very, very closely on that. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the U.S. position is quite clear. And as with regard to sanctions, uh, we never take anything off the table. Uh, everything is always on the table, and uh, whatever leverage we can derive to achieve you, uh, our policy objectives, which in the case of Cameroon, uh, it uh, is for uh, an end to the violence and for a peaceful resolution uh, that addresses uh, the legitimate uh, equity concerns uh, of all the people of, of the country. So. Uh, I would point you, I have nothing new to add to the, the stream of uh, statements that uh, the Department of State has made over the last few years. Thanks, Dr. Fum. Uh, next in the queue, our next questioner is Caitlin Thomas, uh, formerly, formerly of the United Nations. Um, uh, Caitlin, if you can um, state press your current affiliation, uh, over to you. All right. Well, I was a former uh, Chief of Legal Affairs for the UN Mission for Western Sahara, which was set up to conduct a referendum for self-determination for the people of Western Sahara. And I was responsible for helping to put together a voting list, which would have enabled this referendum to take place. And the voters list was, was published at the end of 1999. But unfortunately, as soon as it was published, um, Morocco decided that it was not in its favor and pulled out of the process completely. And the whole issue of the sovereignty over Western Sahara now has been in limbo for almost 20 years because of this. And many people believe that the, the issue of Western Sahara is a cause of major instability, not only in North Africa, but throughout the Sahel region and most areas of Africa. And I would like to know whether um, you are prepared to go forward with any kind of advice about how to put this referendum process on track again so that the people can have their right to self-determination and the issue can be closed once and for all. Oh, well, thank you for your question. Uh, you know, I don't uh, disagree with you on the importance of of settling uh, this. This is one of, you know, a number of unsettled issues uh, that linger and fester uh, and that need to be addressed. Uh, right now, I think there's a pause uh, in the process, uh, in part because the uh, uh, President Kohler, the for uh, former German president who was the UN Secretary General's personal representative in league negotiations, his mandate is uh, at an end, and uh, we're waiting the appointment of a new uh, UN uh, envoy to move the process along. We're, you know, the on one hand, it's always good that the parties are talking. Uh, that's better than anything else than the opposite. But certainly, it's uh, it's something that's been long festering and and needs to be resolved in a way that. You know, I think uh, covers all equities uh, involved. Those of the certainly of the the Shawawi people, but also the legitimate concerns of 
uh, neighbors, uh, Morocco, Algeria, Mauritania, uh, on secure, broader security issues. Uh, so it's, it's something that requires engagement, uh, and uh, I think we'll uh, hopefully see the appointment soon of someone who can has the stature uh, and the uh, and the political heft uh, necessary to uh, move things forward. Thank you. Our next questioner is George Newman of One Planet Education Network. Uh, thank you very much. Um, congratulations, uh, Dr. Pham. Um, this is very interesting. My company's been working um, in the Sahel and in Africa for several years working in Liberia, um, primarily in the Sahel, although we have a footprint in Nigeria. Um, we worked uh, closely with former President Sirleaf and in the transition, you know, to a democratic government, you know, which was pretty historic, uh, kind of a bright light to the southwest of uh, Mali and the, uh, the problem states you're talking about today. But our focus has been on youth um, in education and food security is a priority in sustainable agriculture, smart farming technology, working with the Ministry of Agriculture, Education, and Telecom. And, of course, telecom is an issue with uh, Internet for Education. But um, I just wanted to ask, you know, given the efforts we've done and the very encouraging results we've seen in a short period of time, and, and they've been great to work with, with NGOs even locally there, are there any efforts or plans? I know it may be a little bit early, um, on some of these other regions to focus on youth and food security and let's call it weather change adaptation um, with the rains and, and dealing with that. We're, you know, obviously striving to deal with that in, in Liberia and, uh, and elsewhere. But I just wanted to ask if there are any efforts there that you're planning on in, in, in the months or years ahead. Well, uh, as I've, uh, met, I mentioned in passing earlier, youth is, is inclusion of youth is absolutely critical. Uh, uh, you know, uh, this is true across Africa, but, uh, uh, in general, but it, certainly in the Sahel where more than half the population is, uh, you know, uh, in their teens, uh, or below. Uh, so it's, it's the future, but it is also the present. Uh, uh, their expectations, uh, have to be met, uh, uh, for their own sake, because it's the right thing to do, but also uh, as a matter of security, uh, as well in our own security interests. Uh, one of the key recruitment uh, uh, tools of uh, some of the violent extremist groups we've seen in the region uh, have been, has been just the simple uh, three squares and a paycheck, uh, quite literally. Uh, uh, we've, we've seen this time and time again from uh, 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 fighters or others, ex-combatants who are uh, brought and reintegrated, that the primary motivation of many, not all, uh, was not ideological. Uh, it was rather just three square meals a day and, and a decent paycheck uh, uh, paid regularly. Uh, and so that inclusion of, of youth uh, is, I think, absolutely essential to the security and certainly uh, the development uh and the uh, political stability of the region. Thank you. Uh, our next caller, our next uh, questioner is Russell King, a former government employee. So over to you, Russell. Uh, yes, this is Russell King, former federal employee. Um, my understanding is that the French Foreign Legion has units in all of the Sahel countries, and there have been cross-border raids, I believe, killing Christians in Burkina Faso, and uh, I believe uh, Burkina Faso Bishop has complained that the world's not paying any attention. He's probably right, since Burkina Faso is a rather obscure country. But I'm wondering, if you, have you talked to the French about um, the, the French Foreign Legion? I, 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 I'm sorry, uh, the, the questioner um, tapered off, and I'm not hearing anything. Can you hear me better now? Hello? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I'm Russell King from uh, um, a retired federal employee. My question is about the French Foreign Legion. I believe they're uh, stationed in every Sahel country, and there have been attacks on Christians in Bur Burkina Faso from cross-border raids. 
And I'm wondering, have you talked to the French about uh, the possibility of, of using the French Foreign Legion? I, I believe the French need intelligence from us, too, and I was wondering what intelligence they need from us. Okay. Oh, thank you for your question. I, I can't comment on, obviously, uh, on a forum like this on intelligence matters and and uh, mil uh, military planning questions are best directed to the Pentagon, but I certainly can't talk about intelligence sharing in, in this forum. Uh, as for the use of the French Foreign Legion, uh, you know, th th they are there as part of the overall French effort, Operation Barkhan, uh, which is an anti-terrorism uh, uh, operation, uh, and soon standing up Operation Takuba, which is a more pan-European operation on that, and I'm sure there'll be part and parcel of, of, of that as well. Uh, but as far as uh, attacks on Christians in Burkina Faso, you know, the, we're, there have certainly been attacks on Christians, but there have also been attacks on Muslims. Uh, there have been attacks on people on the basis of, of uh, ethnic uh, identity. Uh, in fact, the fact that Burkina Faso today has a million displaced people testifies to the insecurity uh, in the region. Uh, and so certainly we are concerned about it. We follow these matters. Uh, but as far as what the French decide to do uh, operationally, that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a French decision, just like uh, I wouldn't expect uh, a French official to tell us uh, how to carry out U.S. military operations. Uh, I don't think it's my proper place to uh, tell the French uh, what what operations to carry out. Thank you. Uh, our next caller, uh, Dr. Fahm, is the ambassador to uh, uh, the ambassador of Mauritania, uh, this ambassador Bassam Bam. So welcome, Mr. Ambassador, and uh, uh, the floor is yours. We have that caller. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a question for Mr. Farm. Uh, uh, you, you stated earlier that there is no firm decision um, taken with respect to the downstairing of the U.S. Army in the Sahel. And I would like to to know uh, how do US, the United States government view the the, the newcomers in the Sahel region, I'm talking about Turkey, Russia, and China. My other question is uh, a kind of comparison, uh, comparison. What are the new challenges uh, that you are facing right now in the, in the Sahel region that you did not face in the Great Lake region? Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador, for your, your, for your question. And uh, let me take the opportunity to, uh, to thank uh, uh, your government and people for the warm hospitality I enjoyed recently in Nouakchott. Uh, I had very uh, fruitful conversations with the government from President Ghazwani, uh, Foreign Minister Ismail, and other government officials, uh, and as well as uh, excellent uh, conversations with uh civil society and the business community there. So uh, we're, I think, very delighted at the uh, developments in your country. I think the positive trends and uh, the good state of U.S. Uh, Mauritanian relationships. Uh, and uh, in part, uh, we, uh, I, I express my thanks to you for your part in that. Uh, with regard to uh, other players in the region, most certainly we do look at it at them. Uh, we would be uh, uh, derelict if we didn't, uh, but I think we recognize and we, I think uh, your country does and others, uh, the value proposition in uh, a partnership with the United States and what we bring to the table, uh, not only in terms of capability, but in uh, terms of how Americans do business in the private sector and also in the of the government and security sector, uh, and so we look forward to deepening that that uh, that relationship with your country in particular. Uh, last month, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had 
excellent uh, long conversation with President Ghazwani, uh, which uh, really set a nice uh, uh, backdrop for me to be able to follow up uh, in person on the ground there. Uh, you asked for what challenges are different in the Sahel. Obviously, you know, Africa yeah, is a great, you know, 55 states, each different, each uh, with its own regions, with its own nuances. So everything is always going to be different. Uh, some, some things are similar. That's the, the nature of things. But uh, I would say that probably the greatest difference, other than uh, meteorological, uh, is probably the level of the extremist threat. Uh, it is growing, certainly, in the Great Lakes region. Uh, it grew in the two years I served as special envoy there, uh, burgeoned, uh, and we are concerned about it. Uh, but certainly, uh, thank God, it's not uh, at the level it is uh, we're seeing uh, in the Sahel with uh, both al-Qaeda and Daesh-affiliated groups uh, uh, running amok uh, across the region. So I would say that would be the biggest, uh, I would say, uh, challenge uh, that is different uh, between the two regions. But again, thank you, Ambassador. Great. Um, we're running up against the end of our time slot, and we're not going to, unfortunately, we won't be able to get to all of our remaining questioners. Uh, we have 250 callers on the line. I think we've got another eight or so questions in the queue. But let's let's take one last question. Uh, and our last question will go to uh, a professor. Uh, whoops, wait, what happened here? Yes, uh, Pierre Engelbert, a professor of Pomona College. So uh, over to you, Professor Engelbert, for the final question. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, good morning, um, and thank you, uh, Dr. Fan, for for your remarks and, and your service. Uh, my question is a little bit uh, addressed to you as a special envoy and you as an academic. Um, in the Sahel region, there are some significant differences, and it seems to me that the two countries where you were recently, Mauritania and Niger, uh, appear to be doing a little bit better in terms of facing their security threats uh, than, than Mali and Burkina, uh, Mauritania particularly, uh, uh, Niger maybe. I was wondering, do you have any insights on, on what differentiates these countries in terms of their capacity to respond to threats? And, and is there anything uh, Mali and Burkina can learn from this and, and, or that uh, international partners can build upon? Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Engelbert. Uh, uh, of course, Professor Engelbert Hermanis, uh, he literally wrote the book on Burkina Faso. Uh, uh, although uh, a little older, it's still uh, very much a reference. Uh, I would say uh, I would say just two things, just because uh, the, uh, the, the time constraints. Uh, Mauritania, I think one of the things that I think uh, very positive trends uh, is the forthrightness with which, under President Ghazwani, the country has faced some of the issues that it needs to address. Uh, the Ghazwani government has faced up to the legacy of uh, slavery, its lingering effects, and acknowledged the problem. Uh, you know, you and I both probably, uh, Pierre, remember the day when, you know, governments denied its existence, and the fact that the government there is addressing it head-on is something. The other thing there, positive trend, has been uh, the recent investigation report uh, on corruption uh, by preceding uh, government. Uh, again, it's, you know, the, the justice system has to play itself out, and we presume innocence until proven guilt, but the fact that in less than a year in office, uh, the Ghazwani administration has seen an independent report produced, presented to Parliament, handed over to the Justice Ministry. That that political will to address corruption, uh, although I emphasize again, the justice process has to run its course, but to address corruption head on. Uh, so that, those are things that I think could be lessons across the region. Uh, you know, in Niger, I think one of the key uh, lessons, if you will, to take away on why perhaps it is more successful than uh, others, has been inclusion. Uh, the inclusion of populations, you know, the, uh, that are marginalized in other Sahelian countries. Uh, they're included. The, the Prime Minister of, of Niger, uh, His Excellency Briga Rafini, is a Tuareg. Uh, there are, I believe, half a dozen 
Tuareg ministers in the current Nigerian government. Uh, so that inclusion of populations that in other places are marginalized, I think that's, that's something we said. And I, 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 I would applaud, you know, President uh, Isufu uh, for the fact that he is planning on stepping down. Uh, there's an open seat to be filled uh, next year, uh, bucking the trend of third-termism uh, or prolonging his days, uh, going to respect the constitutional limits and move on. I think that's that. It, when when that occurs in Nigeria, it's going to be the first ever in the country's history of an elected president ceding power to whoever is elected his successor. Uh, that's a historic moment uh, in the country's history, uh, and it's a good sign. It's another if you will, good characteristic to be encouraged. Uh, and I'll just stop there. I could go on and on, but I think those are just some of the things that I think contribute to the more positive uh, uh, momentum in both those countries. Thank you, Dr. Fahm. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, we're grateful for your insights and for your work on, on this very difficult task. Uh, thank you so much for uh, participating and speaking with us today. And I also want to thank all 250 of our callers who participated today. And um, thank you for the thought-provoking questions. And my only regret is that we had another eight or so questions that we weren't able to get to, so my apologies there. But anyway, um, thank you to everyone, and thank you again to Dr. Fahm, and uh, good luck to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. That does conclude today's conference. We do appreciate you attending. You may disconnect at this time.